All right, all right. Good morning, everybody. I have a. Peter asked me if I could give him the microphone for a second. I, didn't, I neglected to ask him what he was going to say. So. Oh no, it's it's just a quick commercial. Uh, first of all, was anybody downtown last night besides the Guglielmis at the Grant Park thing? Did, no? Okay, good, because it got rained out. It was really weird. But anyway, I just wanted to, yeah, it was really crazy. We had a rain delay, concert, a rain delay for an orchestra concert. Uh, next Friday, this coming Friday and Saturday, 6.30 Friday, 7.30 Saturday, uh, Grant Park's doing another concert, obviously, and uh, I recommend it. You guys should come. It's really neat. They're doing a little Wagner and uh, Mendelssohn, the Reformation Symphony. Ooh, Lutherans. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, he was a Lutheran. And, um, and the last piece we're doing, which with the choir, is this piece called The Quickening by this Scottish composer, James McMillan. It's a um, contemporary piece. And it's all about the moment, uh, the quickening, is the, it refers to the moment that cells start dividing and human life is in existence. Uh, it's kind of neat. It starts with this, we're kind of chanting this Aramaic from the Bible, and there's some Pentecost stuff. It's kind of neat. So I just wanted to recommend, you might want to, it's wacky, but uh, yes. Yes, Friday and Saturday, 6.30, 7.30, it's always the same concert. So I just wanted to do the commercial there. Okay, so anyway. Thank Thanks, you. Peter. <laughs> All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, without your help, our labor is useless, and without your light, our search is in vain. Grant us your Holy Spirit, as we study your word, that we may grow in faith and increase in our knowledge of you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so uh, the baskets, money in the baskets today goes to help out for the 4th of July parade. Um, we end up giving out a lot, a lot of water. How many bottles of water, Carol? 1,200 bottles of water, um, and which I purchased from Costco, but it's, it's still a little bit spendy, so if you can help out with that, that'd be great. Um, when then we can serve the community that way, especially if it's a hot day. That's a really nice thing to do for folks. Um, how's everybody doing? Any uh, any questions? Anything? Should we just jump right in? Yep. Okay, let's do this. So uh, here's the we, we got to start with a quiz. Um, what happened last week? Do you remember? David died. David died. Okay, perfect. Nah, right. Okay, David died. And there was a power struggle, right? And so you remember I wrote in big bold letters across the top of the board, what did I, what's the sort of the theme for? That's not how I would have done it, right? So if I was, and you heard that in the vicar's sermon this morning. If you haven't heard his sermon yet, uh, you'll hear it. Um, God doesn't do things in the way that we would imagine, right? So um, if you were going to build a messianic kingdom, um, you probably you probably wouldn't do it in a way which requires political finagling and deceit and um, you know uh, uh, play, power plays and, and all of the th- these things. And you wouldn't choose folks who um, might be good at one time and then later prove to be untrustworthy. You just like you'd make every you'd have all your ducks in a row, right? Wouldn't you? Because that's that's how we do things in life, right? We have our we we have all our ducks in a row. Well, God has it as a different plan in mind. He does it in a different way. Um, that involves death and resurrection. So you remember, the big picture of First and Second Kings looks something like this. I just wore out this marker drawing that line. Um, it's death and resurrection, and the, it's the death and the resurrection of the Davidic kingdom. 
So David is special because... Why is David special? He's a man after God's heart, right? Okay. Um, but he's a, he's a man, and so he's going to die, and he dies. Um, now, last week, uh, we got a picture of what happened after David died. It was, a, it was a death, and then there was a resurrection. What did the resurrection look like? Do you remember? Who, who follows David? Solomon. Solomon. And what does Solomon do? What, what characterizes Solomon's reign? Wisdom. Wisdom. Okay. So, now, here I'm going to give you a clue as to what the rest of First and Second Kings looks like. It's not, it's not nice and pretty like this. In fact, what we have is little episodes that go like this, and then they drop precipitously straight down. Okay? So, this is Solomon. We left last week with Solomon... That's really small. You can barely see it. Uh, Nearly in his heyday, okay? Um, So he's taken the throne. He's vanquished his enemies. He's uh, he's got. He asked for wisdom, and he executes justice in his kingdom like like nobody's business, right? He manages um, all of these affairs so that he's acquired all this wealth. And this is where we pick up today, chapters six and seven of First Kings. Now, uh, I want to cover ten chapters. Of First Kings today, which uh, which had amounted to many many more pages than I wanted to print out, so I picked and chose, and I chose to leave out first of all chapters six and seven. So I'll tell you what happened in chapters six and seven. Um, in chapter six, Solomon builds the temple for God, and this is really uh, this is crucial for Solomon. This is sort of uh, leading into the the pinnacle of his career. David wasn't allowed to build a temple. God. Do you remember why? Too much blood. He was a bloody king, right? God said, and, and, and this came, you know, near the end of David's career. God said, uh, you want to do this, but, but it's, for, it's for your son. Your son is going to do it. Solomon has this in mind, and he builds a temple. Now, uh, I described for you last time how everything was going in, uh, in Solomon's reign. Everything was perfect, right? Everything was great. It was kind of like going back to where? Eden, okay? And so when, David, when Solomon builds the temple, it's really just like that. In the, in the architecture of the temple, um, in, in a lot of the woodwork, there are, uh, there's carved all kinds of fruit and vegetation. There's water everywhere in the temple. Huge basins of water. Uh, in, in the garden, there flowed all of these rivers. There's huge basins of water. The, the, guard, the temple was built in seven years, right? Is that ring of, ring of creation, right? In seven years... Uh, Solomon took to build the temple. He's returning the people to, to the Garden of Eden, um, especially because of, well, nah, this is a terrible question, especially because of what? Why is it a return to the Garden of Eden, the temple? Hmm? That's where God is. That's right. So we're going to hear about that just a bit in chapter 8. So that's chapter 6, the, temple, the construction of the temple. If you want to know all the details and the dimensions and so forth, go ahead and read it. Chapter 7, interestingly, Solomon builds a house for himself, which looks a lot like the temple. Now, uh, you might think that he's engaging in an act of self-promotion, right? I'm going to have a house that's just as good as God's. Well, it's not quite like that. Solomon, um, as David's son, is a son of God, right? And it's fitting that the son dwell in a house like his father's house. So so Solomon's Solomon's house mirrors the temple. And he's, he's established this uh, this architectural relationship, which, imi- which, which 
depicts the relationship that he actually has with God. God is his, is his father. He is his son. Uh, he, he deals with God in the way as, that a father and son deal with each other. Michael. Can I ask, I was, I was reading it, and there was lots of, it was only cypress wood, yeah. lots of gold and no metal. And I was wondering if you could just so say why. This, well, this becomes important later. So gold, it, only gold is, uh, is um, contrasted later when some of the bad kings come. Stuff gets r- looted from the temple and they replace it with bronze um, instead of gold, right? So gold is sort of the best it can be, um, and, and, and Solomon had such wealth, such access to such resources that it was the, it was the best he could do. Now, he hired um, the king of Tyre, Hiram, uh, to, to, to send men and, and chop down all this wood, and evidently cypress wood was you know, this, this, this wood that was particularly suited for this, and that, that Solomon could afford, right? So, uh, that, I mean, that's sort of the long and short of it. But the gold is important, especially later when we, when we hear what happens to the temple. Uh, the temple loses its glory because the gold is gone, right? And it's replaced with, with, lesser, with lesser metals. Okay? Good question. Anybody else? Cedars of Lebanon, too. Yeah, yeah, right, right. It, I mean, these, these sort of uh, trees of legend in some way, right? Okay, let's look at chapter 8. This is on the handout now. Everybody... Did I, are there not, were there not enough handouts? I made 75. It looks like there's more than 75 people here. But you're sharing, which is really nice. Thank you for doing that. Okay. So uh, we're going we're gonna to skip and jump here. But take a look at that. First, and, and, and I cut a lot of things out. So you'll notice we go straight from verse 1 to verse 22. So just know that I did that. If, if you look in your Bible, it's not that your Bible's wrong. It's my own redaction. Okay. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David. Okay, this is really important, and this calls to mind something that happened years and years ago, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Are there any high schoolers in here? No. Oh, okay. Shoot, I don't want to... Okay, not, well, not anymore. Okay, then I'll, then I'll absolve you and I won't ask you. Won't. So, uh, so in, in high, school, we were, uh, high school Bible study, we were doing 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, things go to pot for the people of Israel. All right? And one of the ways that they go to pot is they're fighting against the Philistines and uh, they, they decide we're losing. Hey, they say we're losing. Uh, so, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's, uh, let's leverage God. We'll bring the ark out onto the field with us. And it's never a good idea. Just tell you what. It's not a good idea to leverage God. Uh, it doesn't work, and it usually goes the opposite direction. So they take the ark out of the field, and what happens? God doesn't fight for them. The Philistines steal the ark. Now, from that point on, the ark was sort of wandering around. They tried, so it was an affliction to the Philistines. They got sick, and they said, send it back. We don't want it. Um, but, but it ended up not coming right away to the, to the people of Israel. It stayed in some, some fellow's property for a while. It was in the city of David, uh, later on, but there was nowhere. It was, it was just in the tabernacle. And now Solomon has built for the ark a home, a place for the ark to, to remain. Now, um, the, uh, when the ark was stolen, um, messengers, from, uh, messengers from the battle came back and uh, they spoke to Eli, the priest, uh, who's, who had two sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, who were terrible, terrible fellows. Um, uh, they died in the battle, 
And uh, they, they came and said to Eli, your sons are dead. Um, and he was like, okay, that, I knew that was going to happen. And then, he's, then they say to him, and the ark was stolen. And he falls over in his chair backwards and, and dies. Meanwhile, his daughter-in-law gives birth to a son, and, at, and at, she dies in childbirth. And as she gives birth to her son, she names the child Ichabod. The glory has departed. Okay? So that, that moment in Israel's history when the ark was stolen and the glory departed from Israel, that was a, that was a, a crucial, a turning, a turning point in the history of Israel. And here, in chapter 8, things are being brought back into order. So not only is the ark in the temple, but in verse 11, you don't have this on your page, in verse 11, the glory of the Lord fills the house. Fills the house of the Lord that, that Solomon's built. In fact, if the glory of the Lord is so manifest in, in smoke that the, the priests who are serving there can't serve. They have to leave. The glory is, 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 is present in such intensity, okay? So it really seems like we're being brought back by, sort of as a function of Solomon's wisdom, okay? So Solomon is, is prudent and makes these wise choices. It seems like we're brought back to this point where uh, everything is as it should be. Take a look then uh, down the page, uh, the bottom paragraph on that first page, uh, Solomon is offering this prayer. Now, oh, this is a really interesting thing, um, which, you, uh, uh, which you don't see in 1 Kings, but you see in the parallel account in 2 Chronicles. Um, Solomon is offering this prayer to God um, in dedication of the temple. And in 2 Chronicles, he stands on a platform to pray, which has the same dimensions as the, the, mos- the Mosaic altar, right? So... Solomon, in offering this prayer of dedication, is sort of symbolically offering himself as, as an unbloody sacrifice, which, what, I mean, what does that remind you of? Who sacrifices himself on behalf of the people as intercessor of the people, right? Solomon is a type of Jesus here, right? He's looking ahead to Jesus on the altar, um, offering himself, offering this prayer, this petition to God, let my prayer rise before you as incense, Right? He's offering this petition to God on behalf of the people. He intercedes for the people. Um, and he does it in this, in this very Christological way. And what does he say? Look at verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. Okay? So there's three, thing, three important things going on there. First of all, that, that God, uh, he, he prays that God would listen to their prayers, right? So we're, we're, it's, often, it's often said that we're anthropomorphizing God when we, when we ascribe to him the ability to hear and to see. But it's, I mean, he means it pretty literally here, right? So God is going to listen, and he's going to have his eyes on the place. Now, that's important. Why, um, when, God looks at, when God looks at his people, um, what does he see usually? Sin, right? Think about the Gospels. Um, over and over and over again, Jesus comes into a situation where somebody's suffering, and this is how the story goes. Jesus saw them, and he had compassion on them. He was moved with compassion, right? So the, the sight of his, his sight, his sight is tied to his compassion. 
And when he sees the affliction of the people, um, he, he can't help but have compassion. All right? Um, and that's, that's, why, that's why Solomon begs that God's eyes would be there. Now, you know all about the name. Why is it important that the name be there? What, uh, what does God's name do for us? Or how, can, how is God's name useful to us? Okay, right. So, th- uh, that's, so I'll, I'll, I'll start with that. That's, that's one name by which we can call God, right? Father. Is, are there other names? Yahweh, the name of the Lord Almighty, right? But what else do we call, what else do we call God? Savior, Savior Prince of Peace, right? Lord, um, healer of the brokenhearted, comforter, right? Um, when the name of God is there, he's open, he's open to petition by his name, right? This is why we begin in the name of the Father and in the Son of the Holy Spirit, because when we invoke his name, he's there doing what his name promises, Right, he's there. His presence is is accomplishing what he what the what the name promises to accomplish. Okay. Okay. I have six pages. This is okay. We can do this. Um, uh, <laughs> let's turn the page. Oh, just as a note, um, this re- returning to, having the temple in Jerusalem and having God dwell with His people. This is really important um, foreshadowing. This is really important as a look ahead because. Um, it gives you a sense that when, when Jesus comes into the flesh and lives among his people in the flesh, it's not a wholly unnatural thing for God to do. In fact, this is what God wants to do all along, right? God wants to be with his people, and they won't have him, okay? And so finally he says, well, I'm going to do, do it in this most intimate way, in this way where you'll have me um, not just... Not just uh, you know, mediate, a mediated presence where you need a priest, but where you can have me yourself, okay? Um, but, but you see in the temple and in God's presence in the temple that this is what he wants. He's not a God who, up, who wants to be afar off. He's not a God who wants to be at a distance, um, who has, needs to be summoned when people need him. He wants to be a God who's there at the ready when his name is called, okay? Um, and that's, and that's, what he, that's what he does. Okay, page two. Um, Solomon offers this blessing, verse 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. That rest is important uh, because it, it draws to a conclusion this, this, this picture of Eden, right? The Sabbath rest. Finally, we have rest, okay? And then Solomon prays that next set of underlined uh, lines there. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. So he prays that his words, his prayer, his petition, which was quite lengthy, I left out most of it, uh, let these words of mine be near to the Lord God day and night. Now this is reminiscent, or what's reminiscent of this is Jesus in the Last Supper. Uh, On the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, there's this beautiful ambiguity there, right? Um, if you want, you can, you can say, this is so that we remember Jesus. But you, can't, you don't get that out of the text. It's both and, right? It's, we remember, sure, we remember Jesus in the, in the Lord's Supper. But also, when Jesus says that, he says it so that God remembers 
what he's offered as a sacrifice, right? So that God remembers the sacrifice that Jesus is giving, right? So you, when, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's not just for our memories, but it's for God's memory as well, right? So that God remembers his promises. We, th- this, is, this is all over the Old Testament. We, uh, we, the, the people of Israel are called upon to remind God of the promises. And when they do, when they faithfully remind God, when Moses says, no, don't destroy them, <laughs> because you remember you promised them, Moses is being a faithful prophet, right? He's being a faithful, a faithful person, uh, leader of the people of Israel. Um, very same things going on here. His prayer, Solomon's prayer, is that, uh, that not only would these petitions come, be, be fulfilled by God, but that they would never leave God's presence, that he would always remember them. And they do, right? The promise that he gave to David is, is carried through Solomon in spite of Solomon and all the way down to Jesus. So now, let's keep moving. Turn the page, page 3, chapter 10, talks about the Queen of Sheba. She comes to hear about Solomon's wisdom, talks about Solomon's wealth. And uh, if you're looking at the structure of, of 1 Kings chapters 1 through, 1 through 11, um, the structure is something like this. And you get these sort of recapitulations. It's called a chiastic structure. Maybe you know it from English lit. Right? And what it tells you is that the most important part is right here. And this is 1 Kings 8, the dedication of the temple. So what, what happens next is we hear about some of the things we heard before. Solomon's wealth, Solomon's wealth, right? Um, God's command to Solomon, God's command to Solomon. Uh, in chapter 11, things turn south, okay? This is where we get this precipitous fall. So what we find out, and I'll give you the, I'll, I'll give you the, the long and short of it here, um, the story of Solomon gives us this glimpse of, of, uh, of, God's, of God's presence with the people. But it's, it's founded, uh, in a sense, on Solomon's wisdom, right? And Solomon's construction of the temple um, and adherence, and adherence to the law. Um, and in order for, in order for the, the Davidic kingdom to die and rise again, Every idol, every false god needs to die too, right? Including the false gods of wisdom and a building made with human hands and adherence to the law, okay? So in the fall of Solomon, we see the death of wisdom, okay? It would be easy. Uh, it would be an easy story to tell if we said, you know what, Solomon became a fool in his old age. It's not true. He remained wise, but what happens uh, in chapter 11? Look what happens. Look at, look at the language that's used. I, want, I think we're on page 4 here. Solomon turns from the Lord. King Solomon loved many foreign women. Verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Okay? Uh, what, was, what was needful was not wisdom, but a heart that was, that was turned towards God, like, like David's heart was. Bruce, did you have a question? Yeah. I'm on a mission to get to I, I, <laughs> I appreciate it. I can see that. Um, can we go back to the dedication of the temple? Okay. Um, do we have any idea how long this actually took? It says a day in the same day he dedicated the, the middle yeah. temple. But if you're going to sacrifice 120,000 sheep and, you know, 27,000... <laughs> 
And clean up afterwards. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of blood all over the place. Yeah. I mean, they, they admitted the Bronzoff, you know, altar wasn't big enough to be able to do this. This must have gone on for forever and ever practically. Right, and, and, and you make a good point also, to, which, which points to why the temple is so important. Because in addition to the temple representing the presence of God, um, it being the presence of God, it also indicates, it also uh, uh, stands for the liturgical life of the people of Israel. Because what do they do in the temple? They do the liturgy, right? They come and they pray and they offer sacrifices and they receive God's blessing, okay? Now, um, so this, this initial dedication, who knows? I mean, it was, they, they couldn't count the animals that they sacrificed, right? They couldn't, they were so many that they couldn't count them. Um, so it certainly was an extraordinary occasion. Um, but the whole point was, that this would go on, this would go on and on and on, right? That 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 the people would have this center for their liturgical life, okay? Okay, um, Solomon's heart is turned away, and um, what's striking about the text, chapter eleven here, is how quickly um, how quickly things go straight down. It really is a precipitous fall. Um, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He built a high place for Chemosh and the, the abomination of Moab. This is verse 7. For Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. I mean, that's pretty bad. Um, uh, but, okay, so it's really bad. But uh, n- notice, what, uh, notice what happens next. Look at the bottom of the page. Uh, God, God raises up a bunch of enemies that he has promised to Solomon. Um, the Lord was angry with Solomon. Verse 12, Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it. I will not take away the kingdom from you. I will not tear the kingdom from you. Well, do not do it in your, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. For the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So here God is, is saying, I've, I've made this promise, right? And I'll be true to my promise, but I'm going I'm to sort of, I'm going to trim, trim the edges that don't fit. I'm going to impose the cross on this people, right? And, and trim the edges that, that, aren't, uh, that aren't, aren't with me, that have, don't have hearts that are turned toward me, okay? Uh, Solomon, let's see. Let me find my place here. Okay, so uh, we have two important characters. I'm going to just breeze through this real quick. Two important characters, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Okay, Jeroboam was a servant in the kingdom who was really skillful, and Solomon elevated him to a position of authority, but then Jeroboam has an encounter with a prophet. This is chapter 11. This is page, what page is that? Circle Jeroboam on the top there. Page 4. So you can read that interesting story. The prophet comes along and says, basically, he, he does this prophetic sign. It's always most interesting when the prophets have prophetic action. So he comes and he tears his cloak and says, I'm going to give part of the kingdom to you and I'm going to leave part of the kingdom for Judah, for the house of Judah, for the house of David, okay? And Jeroboam is going to be the king that takes the, 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 the torn away part. Um, but, he's going to, but he's going to leave a portion for Rehoboam, David's grandson, Solomon's son. Now Rehoboam is a fool, unlike his father. So the people of Israel are oppressed. They, Solomon's been working them too hard. Um, because he's distracted by his other loves. And uh, they come and plead to Rehoboam. They say, please, 
let me ease our burden. Rehoboam consults with the elders and they say, that's a good idea, ease their burden. And then he consults with his friends and they say, no, strike them harder, let's make them work harder. And he says, I like what you guys say. So he makes them work harder and this is sort of the, this is the, uh, the, the instigating moment. The kingdom is split, okay? Jeroboam takes, becomes king of, of the, the other tribes of Israel. Rehoboam keeps, keeps Judah, basically. That's, that's all he gets, the house of David. Um, and uh, look at what happens now we're on page five. Thank you. I don't have page numbers on my copy. Um, verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. This is, this is, this is where you see the kingdom split. Now, this is, uh, for us, it's sort of a historical, it's a sort of a historical feature of the, the kingdom of Israel. But think about what it, what it stands for. Think about what it means. You have um, the 12 sons of Jacob, right? The promise was given to Jacob, um, who had the same promise that was given to his father, that was given to his father. And now you have the 12 sons of Jacob, and they, are, they inherit the land. Everything's supposed to be great, and they are split so that they are warring with each other, right? It's a tragedy. It's, it's, it's terrible. It's... Um, it's, uh, it's, it's the thing, this thing which is only mitigated um, when, when God intervenes. So look at what happens in verse 24. Rehoboam gathers 180,000 chosen warriors, and they're going to go and fight the house of Israel. And, and um, the, the man of God comes and says to Rehoboam, Thus says the Lord, this is the underlined part, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Your relatives, the people of Israel. Okay? Um, this is a theme throughout all of First and Second Kings. Even when the kingdoms are split, um, even when the people are neck deep in idolatry, they're always brothers, right? They're always relatives. Um, and they always, they're always described as, as relatives. Um, and as relatives, they can only be sons of God, right? Because the, the, they're, they're the sons of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, okay? Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. Now, um, just, just two more things to get through here. All right. Uh, now you'll notice we go from chapter 12 to chapter 15. So here's what happens in chapters 13 and 14. Um, Jeroboam, uh, if, if, uh, if we're returning to Eden in the, in the building of the temple in Solomon's reign, Jeroboam brings to mind all of the, a reversal of all of the things that happened after the Exodus. So he starts by... Uh, by inventing some liturgical things. They used to have a feast on the seventh month. Well, we're going to have a feast on the eighth month. And it says, this is great, in the, mo- in the month that he devised in his own heart. So he just starts making stuff up, right? Not a good way to, not a good way to do it, right? So in the, in the month that he devised in his own heart, then he builds some golden calves. What does that remind you of, right? Straight out of Egypt, let's have, behold, Israel, here is the God who brought you out of Egypt. In fact, I think he, I think he says those very same words. Um, finally, uh, Jeroboam is confronted by a prophet who says, you're, you're not doing what, what God wants you to do. You're not following in the way of your father. Uh, you're, not, you're not following in a way uh, that's after God's heart. Um, so your son is going to die. Okay? Your firstborn son is going to die, which reminds you of what? Well, David lost a son, but the last of the plagues. So, we're, so with Jeroboam, we return, we, we go straight back through, uh, from the Exodus, uh, you know, through, through, the, through all of the law that God had given about the ceremonies and when you're going to celebrate feasts, he, he perverts that. He builds some golden calves and all of a sudden we're back in Egypt 
with his firstborn son dying, just like Pharaoh's son, right? Jeroboam um, is a wicked king, right? And this is, this is what follows for the people of Israel. Now, last thing. Uh, you'll notice that chapters 15 and 16 are in smaller type. And, I'm not, and if you want to confuse yourself, go ahead and read those. Um, and, and, and that's part of the point, okay? Um, so in 15 and 16, the pace of First and Second Kings accelerates just unbelievably. We spent 11 chapters on Solomon, and now we, we're going to hit, what, six or seven kings in two chapters. Why do you suppose that is? Any guesses? Short reigns. Oh, short, uh, not necessarily short reigns. More of the same. More of the same, right? They did the same things over and over and over again. Same things that uh, um, the previous one had done. Now, with, with some notable exceptions. One of which, look at page... Esau reigns in Judah. What page is that? Seven. Six? Page six. Okay. Look at this. Underlined there. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He's a king of Judah. God doesn't let things... Now, remember last week how one of the themes is God's clemency, right? So that by the, end, by the time we get to the end of First and Second Kings, we're going to say, it's about time. It's about time that they got their due. Well, God never, God never lets things de- devolve so far that, that, it's, uh, that, the, that the people of Israel are no longer discernible anymore. He sends in the third generation a king who does what's right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, he, um, he removes his mother from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image. But this refrain that we have in these, uh, th- these two chapters, that the people, uh, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, the king was not a king, he was an evil king, this is deliberate, literally speaking. These two chapters are just a, a great illustration of how sort of chaotic life was for the people of Israel. Uh, this is what Peter Lighthart, a commentator on the text, says. This is the story of Israel and the story of humanity. Adam thinks that seizing the fruit of the tree of knowledge will enrich his life with wisdom. It does not, but instead condemns him to an endless round of sweat and sadness. The wonder is that the Lord does not leave things there. He appears in the garden and promises a savior, and to fall in Israel, he speaks through the prophets and carries them by the Spirit so that wonders follow. Okay? Take a look at the last page. You recognize this name, Ahab, right? And look at the underlined text. Things seem to hit sort of a, an all-time low here with Ahab. And the writer of First and Second Kings offers a little bit of editorial commentary here, too. And as if it had been a light thing, as if it wasn't enough, that he walked in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. All right? So if you're, if you're a Hebrew listening to this in Hebrew, all you hear is Zebul, Baal, 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 right? All of these, and Zebul, you hear that in the New Testament, Beelzebul, right? It's just it's this buzzing, this wickedness, right? that Ahab um, just sort of dives headlong into. So, here's what's happened. We had Solomon. um, Wisdom dies. This is how we can chart chart the story so far. Wisdom dies. Then we have um, some bad kings. We have a little tiny resurrection with Asa. And then things go down again so that... um, Ahab is about as low as it goes. And we're spo- that's, that's evoked by the end of this chapter. That, the language that's used there is 
supposed to make us disgusted, right? Um, but now, here's, here's the great thing about the story. We'll stop here. Um, what comes next, what comes next week is God sends a prophet, Elijah, right? So it's right here at this point, when things are at their worst, that Elijah comes. That's a J, not a G. And um, that's the story of God's uh, enduring loving kindness for his people of Israel, right? For his faithfulness to his promise. So not, uh, not just when they're at their worst, but because they're at their worst, he sends a prophet, right? Um, and his, and the, the prophecy is um, condemnation for, for wickedness, but even more, it's, it's promise to those who are faithful, right? It's a promise to those who trust, who hear the word and believe, okay? So that's what's coming next. Any questions? That's right. Yeah, as, absolutely. That's right. Ex- absolutely. Now, so I, I, gotta, I can't quit right now. I have to tell you one more thing. I really wanted to tell you about this. Um, you all right with that? Sticking around for five more minutes? Okay. So uh, I, I read a review a, cu- uh, a couple days ago in the New York Times of the, this new Pixar movie, Inside Out. Have you heard of it? Okay. I loved it. I think I highly recommend it. It's a great movie for adults and kids alike. Um, if, you're, if, you, if you're prone to you know, being sappy at movie, wear sunglasses because uh, you... Okay, anyway, um, here's what the review said about the movie. So uh, to set the stage a little bit, the story is about it's this animated movie about this little girl um, who uh, has to go on a move with her parents, and she misses all of her friends and all the things that she did back home. But the, the premise is that during the movie, what the main characters are the emotions inside of her head, which is a fantastic comment, co- concept, depiction, metaphor for uh, for behavioral psychology, right? So she's got anger, joy, sadness, disgust, and fear. These, three, these five characters, everybody has them. They're running around in her brain, running the show. Um, and what the, sh- what, the, what the movie deals with is um, uh, what happens when, when this big change happens in her life and joy really struggles to be in control. This is what the reviewer in the New York Times said, which prompted me to want to go see the movie. He says... Inside Out is an absolute delight, funny and charming, fast-moving and full of surprises. It is also a defense of sorrow, an argument for the necessity of melancholy dressed in the bright colors of entertainment. The youngest viewers will have a blast, while those older than Riley are likely to find themselves in tears, not of grief, but of gratitude and recognition. Sadness, it turns out, is not Joy's rival, but her partner. Our ability to feel sad is what stirs compassion in others and empathy in ourselves. There is no growth without loss and no art without longing. Okay? So, there's two, two, two key things that come out of that that are theologically very applicable, right? So, first of all, that sadness um, in our human condition is essential because it's what stirs compassion, right? So, when the Lord... This is, this is why it's so important that God sees. Because when he sees... Um, and sees sorrow, sees the opposite of joy, he's moved with compassion. He can't help but be moved with compassion. And likewise, we, uh, for our brothers and sisters, um, 
when we see, when we see sorrow and suffering, we're moved with compassion. But also, uh, this, this line, there's no growth without loss, it shows, um, it shows just like in the Davidic kingdom how we all have, have idols that need to be uh, destroyed, idols that need to die. So we just saw wisdom die in 1 first, in first Kings. Um, I was thinking about this. Uh, Peter? Okay, this is your cue. I, I traded him a, uh, an announcement at the beginning if I could call on him and make it look like it was on the spot. He has this hymnal open. Peter, what's that part of the litany where we pray, f- pray against sudden death? From the craft and assaults of the devil, from sudden and evil death. Okay, so why do you suppose we pray in the litany against sudden death? So, yeah, so you have time to prepare, right? So think about, uh, I just, I've been reflecting on this lately. Think about what one of our, one of our sort of most subtle and biggest idols is. Um, is, our, is, is, is our health, is our, is our very life, right? Which you take for granted while you have it. And sudden death um, sort of takes it away without giving you a chance to reflect on how you've, how you've idolized it. So we, we pray against sudden death that we might be prepared, right? They used to call, they used to write these manuals um, uh, back in the, in the Middle Ages which sort of described the Christian life as the ars moriendi, the art of dying, because as a matter of fact, we all are, right? Um, and anyway, the whole point is there's, there's, there's no growth without loss, and what, what happens in the case of sorrow and suffering, what happens in the case of a not, a not sudden death is uh, your idols are destroyed. God is working a blessing for you, right? He's taking away the things that you've relied on to this point in your life, and he's saying, all you've got left is me. That's what he's doing in First and Second Kings. Um, we, get, we see wisdom die here. Later, we're going to see um, even God's, even, even the Torah die. Um, we're, later, we're going to see the temple die as the people are, are exiled. And it's not even concluded in First and Second Kings. It's finally concluded in the New Testament when who dies? None other than wisdom incarnate, God's word incarnate, and the temple incarnate, right? Finally, they die and uh, in, in the person of Jesus, right? Bruce. Um, compassion, okay? Yeah. Is a, you're talking about the movie. We also have to be careful with compassion in what is drawing us to that compassion. Uh, Solomon thought he was being compassionate, I'm sure, for his wives because they were complaining that they didn't have a place to go worship. Rather than standing up and saying, no, there's only one God. You need to follow my God in the, in the name of tolerance, if you will. He opened up and let them, and what happened is, is that is how right. crack opened up to break all this apart. Okay. Yeah. Careful about being tolerant as opposed to where that compassion, what generates compassion. This is, uh, it, it's, a, it's a great point. Luther talks about this. Um, in a sermon that he preaches on, on the cross and suffering, he says, you don't get to invent your own crosses. You don't get to make your own suffering. If you, uh, if you come up with your own suffering, then it's not real suffering, right? And you don't need to because suffering will find you as a Christian. It will, all right? Um, and the, and, but, but suffering, genuine suffering, is what evokes compassion. Um, and and, and, and uh, 
that compassion um, that's prompted by, prompted by love, which we, which we see, it, you know, epitome, the epitome of which is God's love. Um, he, he gives us this example which we, can never, which we can never live up to, but his compassion is endless, boundless for those who suffer, okay? All right. We've got to take 15 minutes off next week because we went over and board here. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much.